Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Hi, I'm Kate Zambrino, and I'm a writer. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. But I often think what it takes to be a writer or an artist is just choosing to stay within a room for a period of time and being uncomfortable and doing that over and over again. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's guest, the writer Kate Zambrino. Last year, Kate published a novel, Drifts, to acclaim from both the literary and the art world. It's a work about a writer struggling to write a novel, a version of Kate herself, complete with her obsessions, from Rainer Maria Rilke and Ludwig Wittgenstein to Sarah Charlesworth. It's funny and smart, and she wrote it before the pandemic, but it captured everything about life over the past 18 months. Trying to create things in isolation, making structures at home, drifting a little, and being okay with it. But Kate, who's a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow in nonfiction, also writes powerfully about art. In addition to Rilke and Charlesworth, we spent time discussing her love for Albrecht Dürer, Chantal Ackermann, Peter Hujar, and her own photography of her dog, which also appears in Drifts. So I really want to talk, as you know, about drifts in particular, and um, and really kind of the role of of art in that book and in your writing in general. Um, and so I'm curious about the artists that appear in drifts, and there are certain people that come up again and again. Hujar, Durer, Sarah Charlesworth makes a kind of slightly extended appearance. Um, how is looking at art and and thinking about art a kind of feature of of the process of writing this book? Yeah, I think so much of Drifts is about walking around and looking at art or even being at home and looking at art. And I was really interested in trying to write seeing or learning to see, to quote Rilke when he's in Paris and walking around Paris after looking at the paintings of Cezanne or the sculptures of Rodin. And so I really wanted to capture somehow how looking at certain art and the sort of encounter with certain types of art, especially an accidental encounter like I felt with the Sarah Charlesworth stills at the New Museum that I kept on returning to, how that can kind of change the way you then go about the world and it can kind of be an extraordinary way to filter reality. Um, and so I think so much of Drifts is about the impulse of not only seeing, but like learning to see. And I think Drifts is, I would probably describe it as the latest in a series of works where I'm thinking through photography. And in this case, thinking through photo photography as, as an amateur, but finding it changing the way I look at 
animals, trees, the world. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's pr- probably one of the central impulses behind the work. And I mean, one thing I'm going to come back to the to the animals and the trees because I feel like I want to hear how those what those changes might feel and look like for you in the process of writing this. But um, I'm really curious whether or not you were thinking about the, the self-changing. I mean, the, the amazing thing about Drifts is is the the kind of, as it were, real time, not quite real time, but the, the duration of the book and the, and, the, and the return to certain people, right? Whether it's Wittgenstein or Rilke or Dürer or... And, and the self, of course, changing as the encounters, as time passes in the book and those encounters then change. And I feel like so much of the, the capturing the experience of art is also capturing the way in which a changing self ends up changing the situation or the interaction dramatically Absolutely. Uh, when an object is seen. I mean, were you aware of kind of coming back to something, not just the repeated Charlesworth, but other things that come up, let's say, in the beginning, middle and end and having very different uh, feelings and reactions to those things? Yes. And I think uh, some of my art writing of the past couple of years is often about returning back to the visual or the theoretical. And and I think in some ways, the figures that repeat through drifts, some of the ones that you mentioned, I would also add Chantal Ackerman is a very important artist. Um, In many ways, drifts is a embodied failed essay on Chantal Ackerman that I Mm -hmm. promised to an anthology and did not write. Um, but I, I do tend to keep on returning to these artists over and over again. Um, like my two works on grief, Book of Mother and Appendix Project, I write about Louise Bourgeois and one. And then in Appendix Project, I return to her work, finding myself completely different, like a completely different self. And so viewing viewing the work and the, the artists who made the work completely differently. So I think that this idea of what's beyond the self and a changing self and a self that can go through many transformations and periods of instability is something that really coheres in drifts. But what does return are these artists, but cast in different lights. So certainly how the narrator views Rilke or Rilke's art writing changes throughout, how she views Ackerman changes throughout, but it is this sense of continuance or ongoingness in terms of obsession. And what is it for you that make art objects, in particular, though I would say literary objects as well, so rich for that kind of um, reflective thinking, you know, that kind of changing over time thinking. I mean, you know, there are many objects that could take, that could occupy that space, a memory, you know, a location, a friendship, but it feels like you really have a a sort of penchant for imbuing the experiences around art objects with that kind of recursive energy. And And I'm curious if you have a sense for the origins of that. I used to think, I think because people told me when I first started writing or publishing that I was someone who worked from memoir, which I think is like working from memory or experiences. And I actually think that my central meditation as a writer is time and like, and kind of what's beyond the self and a durational quality. And so I think often I look at 
art, and I kind of return to the same writers and artists. I'm not, I'm not that promiscuous right. of a reader or or, or an art um, consumer consumer or viewer. I'm not that promiscuous. I tend to be very slow and not know what I think of something, and then I need to chew over it for a long period of time. And I think usually books or some sort of project emerges from that. And so it's kind of the spirit of not knowing. I, I tend not to write about art that I immediately understand or that feels, um, I don't know if there's any art that you immediately understand, but probably, I tend to- It's not I, art at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's not. I tend to, it's something troubles me if there's if there's also some process or durational aspect of the artist, like I think of Hujar as such a process oriented artist, or Sarah Charlesworth mm-hmm. certainly, in terms of her collecting and how collecting plays such a role in her work, um, and so I tend to view them, I guess, like alter egos in terms of like thinking through these ideas, and I've always found that aspect of the conceptual in terms of how it relates to art or certain writers to be very, it's like something I'm, I can think through then. Mm. Um, it gives me something to think through as opposed to thinking right. through myself, which I usually find fairly boring. But that's what it feels like. It feels like in some ways these people become a scrim onto which you are projected in some way and then you discover yourself through them, right? That's the kind of, it's this, this incredible function of the objects and the individuals, I would say, like Rilke or Walzer or uh, you know a, a number of the writers, I, you know Chris Marker too is someone who who appears again and again. I used to be um, really Earth. obsessed with biography, and I think that some of my early work shows a real interest in more of the biographies of the artists. With Rilke, I am definitely obsessed with his biography as a sort of scrim, as you say, in dress. But overall, yeah, it's the thinking through the art making and the object mm-hmm. making and the obsession. It mm-hmm. does. It does. I guess that's what makes me write, is, yeah. is thinking through that. Right. It's, 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 it's in a funny way, biography, it's more looking for the motivations that would produce these specific objects in an individual, right? It seems that's like right. Le- less the trappings of a, strictly a biography, as it were, and more like, how do you get to the place where you're writing those poems or writing the notebooks of Maltelorz, Brigo, or whatever it is um, that's being investigated? And I feel like that's also... Clearly, you know, Wittgenstein in some ways is the outlier in the book because he's, he's the most patently philosophical um, and the least classified, you know, more as an academic in a way than as an artist. But of course, his temperament and his own biography lend themselves much more to some of these other people. Well, I think also with Wittgenstein, and I keep on returning to Wittgenstein in kind of joking anecdotal ways, like in my screen tests or... Um, but I think with Wittgenstein is like he did produce books, but I think his work was so ephemeral. It was so much about just thinking, just the practice of thinking and the process of thinking. And it was kind of without an object. He was very, so I think in that way he is an artist. <laughs> his work is very durational and it's not about, it wasn't even about um, ambition really, except to try to think through something. I think that's why I keep on returning to him. There's this really great biography of a young student of his named Frank Ramsey. I don't know if you've seen Oh, I don't book. know it. Yeah, it, it, that's worth making a note of. I'm, I'm about halfway through it. He, I didn't know much about Frank Ramsey. He was the most brilliant young philosopher at Cambridge. He was brought actually into the math and economics department by Keynes, 
but he he's the one who produced the first Wittgenstein translation of the Tractatus when he was 19 oh, as wow. a student. And he died at 26 of like, of dis, I don't I, sort of like gout gone wrong or something like that. I forget the details of his death, but really sad. And he was poised to be one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. I really love that Wittgenstein just finally decided to publish because he was worried all his students would plagiarize him. It was yeah, like that exactly. final that final push towards ambition where he thought, okay, I have to make a book. I have to make an object out of it. And it's definitely true that when he talks about in his, you mentioned that Malcolm, that that uh, memoir of- Yeah, the Norman that, Malcolm. Norman Malcolm, exactly. Yes. Memoir of Wittgenstein, which I weirdly read recently also. And there too, you have that, that sense of, of just struggling to get the thoughts out at the end, you know, and really not thinking about producing in any concrete sense. Well, that's what I like about Wittgenstein too, is I think people think of him as such an austere philosopher, but so much of his life was about not being able to think, which is something I definitely yeah. relate to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, in a funny way, that is, that is the subject matter of, of your work too. Yes, exactly. I wanted to, to ask about the what you said earlier, this this seeing certain things anew sort of as a result of your practice or you know, burgeoning practice as an amateur photographer. Of course, there are images that come throughout drifts. Is that what you meant? Seeing animals, plant life, your dog uh, yeah. in a kind of new light? Yeah, or even just things that I haven't taken photographs of, but Whenever I view Chantal Ackerman's videos or her photography that are so much about interior spaces and domestic spaces, I feel like looking at them or looking at the work of Maura Davey, who's so much a flaneur of the interior, it just, it shapes the way I look at objects. And I think mm. as opposed to really expressing that visually, I tend to, I'm, tem I'm more interested in how writing can take on these visual forms. Um, so yeah, but yeah, animals too. I think drifts, you know, obviously contemplating animals is a big force yeah, Janae, behind drifts. I mean. Yeah. The little dog Janae. Yeah. So I took tons and tons of photographs. A sort of photographic derive is a huge part of the stuff behind drifts that didn't really make it into drifts. And also like these sort of desktop collages or other sort of collages and this idea of like copying um, so yeah, I think it was more, that was a lot of the process behind it. This is a weird question, but you know, in a book that's so much about not being able to finish in some way, right? That, mm -hmm. I mean, that is, this is sort of thematic push. What does it feel like now to have this, this particular book out in the world? Well, it's a strange time to have books out in the world. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I'm I mean, so, I'm so used to, I mean, I'm so used to walking in and out of bookstores in New York. It's so much part of um, kind of how I exist or like the small pleasures I take in city life. And so I don't, I don't really know what it's like having the book out except to have mostly media people write about it, right? Or, or you know, reviewers. And so I always think that there's a very interesting lag time where readers then take up the book and they often have a different way of reading it than these sort of dominant narratives or the narratives that press releases dictate. I think that my publisher really hit home the narrative that it's a book about not writing. And I guess I didn't realize how much it was about that <laughs> until people read it. To me, it's so much about 
like seeing and a certain feeling and it's a work of like pregnancy in the city and alienation and a sort of voluptuousness. But yeah, I didn't realize how much it's about not writing. To me, it's less about that. And that's just more, you know, this sort of tribute to a note-taking impulse that someone like Zabald does, where Zabald's works, he's working on the work and then the work is the work. Right. Or that's just your kind of baseline disposition, the difficulty of writing. Yes. It's not necessarily specifically thematized in this one. Yes. Um, the smallness yet difficulty of it. I was, yeah, I mean, that's something that I was curious about too, that, you know, your route to smallness in some ways takes up some of the producers of masterpieces. So yes, you know, it's, and I'll try to be more specific, but <laughs> you're looking at the edges sometimes, like Walzer is someone who's sort of at the edges, though increasingly I feel kind of has a mainstream presence. It's funny, um, right? It's it certainly, but, but, you know, I'm, you know, you talk a, a lot about sort of like, th again, the smallness, the kind of the intimacy, the non-performative, non-verbose kind of non-largeness of this, pro this particular project. Yes. But you get there by looking at people about whom one might typically say there's, there's, you know, enormous historical presence. Yeah. It's so interesting. And and it feels like you do it by looking at nuances of the biography that might otherwise not be known to people. I'm just curious if you're sort of aware, many of the artists and of course, writers and philosophers, thinkers that you mentioned are of course quite famous, you know, but, but you're getting to your vision of reality and of your own project through their work. Yeah, I think that ambivalence that you know is so much part of the project. You know, when Her I wrote this book called Heroines, which was very much read as like a feminist biography project that Semiotex published and Crisscross edited. And after it came out, I became so ornery. I just talked about Robert Walzer whenever anyone asked me who my favorite writer was. Um, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think there's a there's a real um, intriguing aspect of how much Robert Walzer and um, who else? I yeah, maybe Wittgenstein are are seen as these like huge geniuses now. But I mean, Volzer was basically not very known in, in his lifetime no. at all. You know, no, or, it's or the last. It, I think it's the translations in the last ten years that have done. Yeah, that for, the for Susan Bernowski you know? translations, yeah. I think, and the New York Review of Books and exactly um, Ben Lerner, etc. And I mean, I'm I'm excited that more people know about Walzer. And certainly I think Zabald did a lot to, you know, and Zabald was certainly very famous in his lifetime. And he did a lot um, to like, kind of promote or write about Walzer or and so much of his work is through Walzer. But what I think is interesting about Walzer is that I think he's seen as so much like a style now. But what I think mm. is very intriguing about him is the passivity of his narrators which I find so deeply relevant now hmm. um, in that the, there's this complete contrariness to how passive his narrators are. And so I think that's the tradition that I always related to in terms of Walzer. And I think me bringing up Walzer and Kafka and Rilke and Zebald is a huge orneriness because I usually would not be placed within that tradition. Right. So it's, but like, yeah. Yeah. But maybe we talk about traditions for a second, because, you know, there's certainly moments where you explicitly take aim at a kind of 
male-dominated tradition of what everyone now calls autofiction. Um, and and I, I was just curious, you know, it, it, that resonated with me because it's true that when we talk about autofiction, we are most of the time talking about male autofiction. I mean, that's just sort of like the, the mainstream names um, are, are male. And I'm curious, it's... That's interesting for many reasons. We also know that reading in general is is dwindling among men, and 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 you know women are the are the main book buyers right. in the world, and, and increasingly the readers. So it's strange that the dominant kind of new genre of let's say the last two decades is so male dominated. And I'm curious about uh, whether you see room for a shift into you know or, or a, a, an, an increase in the canon or a broadening out of the canon to identify the key writers in that genre that are not men. Well. I think the thing about autofiction and is that it's historically a pretty old tradition. I mean, you have, you know, like the Japanese eye novel, which was so big in the 70s, or you have American New Narrative of the 80s and 90s, or you have the French autoportrait. I mean, Guibert and Duras were annoyed with the term autofiction during their lifetime. And so I think it's been this like label that's been fixed for a while that's, you know, this like very 70s um, mm. term that authors can sometimes feel a little reluctant to apply to themselves. So I don't know whether it's historically masculine. I do think the past couple of years, um, people make a lot of the fact that I mention or reference Ben I, Lerner in one <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's not really, that, I'm less concerned with that. That's sort of like something that happens in the book, but more just the, the the pose, which I think does point out something that if it wasn't obvious beforehand, and in a way it wasn't to me, um, is certainly obvious in retrospect after having read the book. Well, I'm trying to think who else is considered autofiction who's male besides Ben Lerner. I guess Nosgaard or Jeff yeah, Dyer. I mean, yeah, I think the thing is, is that when you have men writing autofiction, they tend to be placed within the canon of Bernhard, Walzer and Zabald, like immediately. That's the tradition. And then I think when you have, like, you know, the whole canon of semiotext writers and Chris Cross and um, then now, of course, Sheila, um, Sheila Hady or um, I would put Kusk outside of this. I think Rachel Kusk is not, is not treated exactly the same, but they tend to be read as confessional memoirists, at least original, originally. So I think it's, I think actually probably more women are writing first-person narratives in a playful way. I mean, you know, you think Eileen Miles and Inferno, you know, Criss Cross and I Love Dick, um, but they're not treated in the same way. Like, I don't think Criss Cross has ever been reviewed in the New York Times. So I think that there is, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So I think that there are a few women who are given that genius treatment where they're placed within the tradition. I think Rachel Cusk is an exception. Um, at least in the sort of American tradition. So I think it's less about um, who is, and maybe it has to do with this notion of like, you know, who's considered the reader or who's marketed in a certain way. Um, But I do think, um, I do think Ben Lerner, who's a very smart writer, and I think comes through his Walzer and Zabald interests quite honestly, and isn't in that tradition, but I just think he's viewed in a very, very different way. Um, and it's interesting. I do write about so many hermit bachelors in drifts historically, but the community I'm writing to 
um, based on real writers, are all women and non-binary contemporary writers whose you know whose work is very much within these traditions, but are are not con- seen as these big writers. So you know, that, to that point, it's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about until now. But many of those people in that community are also very drawn to visual art. Yes. Um, explicitly so in some cases, and and I know that just sort of anecdotally in others. And you have someone like I'm, Banu Kapil, who's actually, you know, a lot of her work is so close to performance art and conceptual art. I think the reason might be is some of these writers might actually get a better audience through an art audience who, well, yeah. That's kind of the interesting, I've talked about this with some writers before, but you know, one of the questions is what does separate the audiences right now? I mean, in, in some ways, there's nothing formal that needs to separate them other than the mechanisms of, or the, I should say, the, the structures that have established, that separate artists from writers, whether it's a publishing house versus a gallery or, you know, but, but there's certainly nothing a writer does that couldn't be considered visual art in another world, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm curious if, if there's a, sense in that community that the world of visual art is simply more willing to accept experimentation, weirdness, you know, the vagaries of personality, eccentricity than, say, um, the more traditional world of letters. Yeah, and I think that's why you see Renee Gladman, whose work is so extraordinary, how much she's um, pivoting towards drawing and sort of writing about drawing with her recent wave books. Or you have Banu Kapil, who's you know, doing performances at the ICA in London um, and is so, because their work is so, I mean, so much on the same, like for me, there are geniuses like Zebald, but they are more experimenting. They're writing small books, like literally small books in terms of page count. And there is this, I mean, when you, you have artists are allowed to be more conceptual, to be, yeah, to be weirder, to be driftier, um, and so, yeah, I think that's the reason the art world has embraced those writers. Um, I think, you know, so much of American publishing is about institutional privilege, which certainly I have. I mean, the real irony is that I do see Drifts as a small book. I don't see it as this huge book, but of course my publishers <laughs> want it to be a big book. <laughs> they really want it to be this big crossover book. Um, which is, you know, their, their thing, which I'm not going to stand in that way. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. That's not, no. But it's true that it feels rather than even the art world embracing these people. I think these people have realized, these writers have realized that the art world is, is just maybe a better place, right? Like it's almost just turning, turning their back a little bit on the establishment and fully embracing this kind of genre defying status um and i find that very interesting and i and i'm sure it's tied to what we were talking about earlier that you know if the dominant new genre is sort of identified with male writers and again not that it's new as in new under the sun but kind of new as in the thing that people are talking about in the last you know two decades where where the self you know stands for in, in, in a fictional narrative or shapes it um it's not surprising that they would turn to a different you know to a kind of different place well, I think publishing is one of the most conservative art forms, to be honest, like writing. So, and I think that, you know, for for a work to break through and be published on a major press, it, it has to go through all these different sort of committees right. and marketing right. committees. 
And so, yeah, I think that the art making impulse and, and also the impulse to produce many projects um, right, and to sure. see, you know, and like an, a, right, another writer who we haven't mentioned who I think is really extraordinary is the writer Andrew Durbin, um, who's sure. the editor of, of Freeze, and Freeze. He, he has a novella on Hervé Gebert that just came out. And I see, a, I see his work as certainly continuing new narrative and being in conversation with autofiction, but also very related to his role in the art world and yeah. to, into looking at art. Totally. I completely agree. Um, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about the, the, the photo- your photography practice. I mean, is this something that you, you, you put in the book because, as you mentioned, it sort of documents the, the labor of looking that went into um, the, the, the being in, in drifts or the, you know, the, the, the writing the notes and the coming up with drifts or, um, or is that something that, you know, I, I'm just curious about the, the, the kind of motivations there or the, the, the feeling of the significance of the images. It's weird, you know, in Book of Mudder, I kind of played a little bit with having some images and I wound up taking most of the images out and the images, I only have a diptych in there. And it's a reproduction of a still from Barbara Loden's Wanda and a photograph of my mother kind of in um, relationship to each other. But I I usually kind of veer away from including images in a work because I think like that role of ekphrasis should do its own work. Yes, I'm I'm of that mindset too, which is, but I'm always curious about what images do when they are inserted with text. But for me, yes, for me, for this work, I feel like the images aren't illustrative and they're often playful. And they're quite right. partial. Um, so it's mm-hmm. not like I reproduce and hold Durer's Melancholia, but I'll have right. like a little edge of a reproduction from it. And, you know, this is like me purely copying and being obsessed by Zabald, especially, I mean, the work that I was most obsessed with is his probably least liked work, which is Vertigo, um, where mm. he does include partial reproductions of Renaissance paintings yeah. or, a, you know, a very playful photograph of his um, driver's license. And so I think I was very interested in how image worked in sort of counterpoint to language and how mm. an image can provide its own sort of like space within a text. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it's all the images are pretty intentional. And like with the Rilke section, they're very um like modified like Rilke's right. erased from his desk in the very um famous author photograph of him or these like images i got from the internet so i was really interested in like you know what would happen to sort of copy these images into a text and like most of the images are like diptychs or right collages and you know, could you have imagined when you were writing this book that the life that you're describing, the life of, of your life as a writer, <laughs> would end up would end up kind of being the life that everyone is living? <laughs> it's really funny because people say that to me, and Kyle Sheka wrote this um, New Republic piece about it. But it's it's hard for me to. I mean, I, I understand that there are people who are like very social and travel a lot and have real lives, but. My life has been hermetic for so long. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't realize most people didn't live like this. <laughs> so. Right, 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 right. But it is, it's quite, I think a lot of people will read this and actually, you know, your your publisher's right that it's got sort of in this moment massive crossover potential because it's describing a reality that's basically known to many more people now than it might have been 
even six months ago, you know? This idea of staying at home. And- yeah, of just being in a space and having to sort of like contend with yourself and whatever surrounds you and take stock of, of your psychic space and binge watch stuff and read more. <laughs> and, you know, like there's all these things that I feel are are coming people's, coming everyone's way or are already very much now in their lives in a way that wasn't the case. There's so much more running away that would have been happening before when it was possible to run away. I often think that that, I mean, there's many different types of artists and many different types of writers, but I often think what it takes to be a writer or an artist is just choosing to stay within a room for a period of time and being uncomfortable and doing that over and over again. <laughs> so a high threshold for suffering is yeah, a high for discomfort. Let's say discomfort. Yeah, discomfort. So <laughs> it's to suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Kate, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to me about your wonderful new book. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com/dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.